So uh, last week we kicked off a, a series of talks about stewardship, and because it's about stewardship, it'll be a short series. Uh, we're going to wrap it up next week. Um, and and uh, stewardship, as, as you remember if you were here last week, stewardship is the idea that that everything we have belongs to God, that that uh, everything that that we think of as ours is actually something that God has entrusted to us, that we are the managers of a portfolio, and God has given us the things in the portfolio. That includes money, it includes our possessions, it includes our labor. Um, the, the, the fact that we are able to work, the fact that we found a job in a difficult economy, uh, our labor is something that God has entrusted to us. So all the things we have belong to God, and we are the, the managers of that portfolio. But the portfolio also includes intangible things, things like our ideas or our influence, the fact that there's people who look to us and, and kind of follow our lead. That is um, the influence that is part of our portfolio. Everything we've got is entrusted to us by God, and our role as stewards is to manage that for God. And uh, what we saw last week is the way to do that, the way to do that well, if you want to be a good steward, the way to do that, the way to do it is exactly the way you do it for anybody else. You'd say, what does the owner want to do? What would the owner do if they were in my position, if they were the ones who were actually managing it? And then to carry out the the behavior that is closest to what the, the owner would do. And because God is a generous God, what God wants us to be is generous. So God gives us the, the resources and then calls us to be generous. So... That's what we saw last week, that God wants us to be generous. Um, what we did not talk about last week is the church, because, because the church is one way you can be generous. It's one, one um, place, one thing that you can support with your generosity. But it's by no means the only one. Now, I think it's a good, it's a good cause. I think the church is a good thing to support, but I would, wouldn't I? I mean, I get my salary from the church. So the question we're going to talk about is, in, in a universe full of all kinds of ways and places that you can be generous, why should you support the church? And we're going to talk about that this week, and then we'll wrap up our conversation next week. So the question about the church is, what do I get for my money? Um, now, when you put it that bluntly, it's kind of, you know, it doesn't sound like generosity anymore. So maybe not what do I get, but what is gotten? What, what is it that I'm um, uh, providing for if I support the church with my money? That's the, that's the question that you have to ask, because otherwise, if you can't get a good answer to that question, you should go support a homeless shelter or um, Clare House. You should support the zoo. You should support um, uh, Doctors Without Borders. There's all kinds of ways you can be generous, and, and none of them have anything to do with the church. So if the church can't answer the question, what do you get for your money, then you should find some place that can answer that question. So I will tell you, what you get for the church, for, when you support the church, is you get the, the congregation, and you also get the... You get the congregation... Sorry. You get the congregation, uh, and you get the mission of the church. By the congregation, I mean the people around you, the people you see when you look sideways or backwards, forwards. Uh, what you get is those people. That is the church... And you also get the facility that they meet in. So you get this building, you get the fact that it's warm right now on a cold day, you get snow removal during the winter, you get the facility that the church meets in, and you also get the paid staff. So you do get me, you get some other people who are, who are a lesser part of the budget than I am, but you get 
You get the paid staff for the church. That's what you get when you support the church. That and the mission of the church. And I'm going to talk about the church today. I'm going to talk about the mission of the church um, next week. And really, you can't separate them. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other. In fact, um, 80 years ago, a Swiss theologian named Emil Brunner put it this way. He said, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. That you can't have a church without mission any more than you can have a fire without burning. If you if you stop having a, a burning, you don't have a fire anymore. If you stop having mission, you don't have a church anymore. So, uh, so I am breaking them apart just for the interest of time. But really, it's a package deal. You can't have a church without the mission of the church. So today we'll just look at the first part of that, the church. So um, the way I want to look at that is I want to break a rule. In seminary, they told me only preach from one text, um, but uh, you're good Christians. I know you're good Christians because you're here when you knew it was going to be a sermon on stewardship. So um, you get extra points in heaven, I think, for that. So um, I'm going to break a rule. They taught me in seminary never preach on more than one topic at once. I'm, I'm preaching on one topic, but I'm preaching from two texts. And the reason for that is the, the, the primary text, the primary passage of Scripture I want to look at is from Hebrews. And the problem with it, the only problem with it, it's a perfectly good passage, the only problem with it is that it's kind of, it spells it out in a pretty dry uh, form. It just kind of says, here's what the church is. The church is these things, A, B, C. Uh, but there's a picture that we can see when we look at the stories about Jesus and his disciples. When we look at the gospel accounts, we see a picture that illustrates it and, and says, if you do what the Hebrews passage tells you to do, what does that look like? And so we're going to look at both, one to kind of tell us what to do, and the other to kind of show us what it will look like when we do. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, if you turn to um, Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says, because of what Jesus has done, um, not because you're so wonderful, not because you're such a great uh, uh, saint and you've done so many awesome things, uh, not because you've never messed up uh, um, any anything you, because you, you love God and you love Jesus, not because of that, but because of Jesus, because of what he has done, that he has opened up a path through the curtain. Now, he's talking about um, the, the curtain uh, in the sanctuary, the, the sanctuary in the temple that was the, the barrier between the priest and the, the most holy place. But really, he's talking about the fact that we can't, we can't approach God. God is, God is separated from us by the barrier of our sin. And we can't get to God because of that barrier that we've erected. But he says Jesus has demolished that barrier. And he says more than that, because Jesus has done this, it gives us confidence. If we had somehow been able to kind of climb over the barrier if we'd been able to get over the wall between us and God, if we'd been able to kind of sneak our way through the curtain somehow, uh, we wouldn't have had confidence because we would have been in a place where we didn't belong. And we would have been afraid, you know, God's going to kick me out, God's going to zap me with lightning, whatever it is. We wouldn't have confidence. But he says, the writer here says, we do have confidence because Jesus has explicitly opened this way for us. And he's done it on his own merits rather than ours. So that's kind of the background. If that's true, then what? And the answer is, let us approach. If the hole is there in the wall, go through it. Let us approach. Let us go into the sanctuary 
um, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, again, not because of anything you've done or because you're so awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. Jesus has washed you clean from your sin. Whatever whatever sin you're conscious of, uh, it has been washed from you by the blood of Jesus. So he says, let us approach with a true heart, with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing is, go ahead and approach God. The second thing is, once you're there, stay. He says, hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Because the reality is, once you get, once you do step one, once you approach God, once you say, Jesus has made it possible for me to approach God, what's going to happen is you're going to start doubting. You're going to say, yeah, but if he knew, if he really knew what kind of person I am, if he knew how badly I was wounded by that thing that happened to me, you're going to start doubting. You're going to say, I don't belong here. Somehow there was a mistake. They let me in, but I don't belong here. And what he says is, hold fast to the confession of our hope, not because you're so awesome, but because he who is promised is faithful. Because it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't depend on your wonderfulness. It doesn't appear, uh, depend on your faithfulness. It depends on his faithfulness. So those are the first two things it says to do. And really, you can do those if you're shipwrecked all by yourself on a desert island. You can do those all by yourself. But look at the third thing. Look at the third thing. It says, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's not a great phrase. Let us consider how to provoke. Let us consider how to provoke. Let us put our heads together. Let us, let us reason together. Let us think how to provoke one another. You know, how many times do churches get that wrong? How many times do they just skip that first word? They say, let us provoke one another to love or good deeds. Sometimes they do the opposite. Sometimes they only do the considering. They say, you know what? You know, it's a miracle they're in church at all today. You know, they're just going to be like that. And, and they skip the part about provoking to love and good deeds. But the writer of, of Hebrews says, says, think about what you're doing. Think about the person who you're dealing with. And then provoke them to love and good deeds. Don't say, well, they're just always going to be like that. Don't let them, don't let them go. Don't, don't, don't ignore them. Don't ignore the situation they're in. Help them grow as a believer. But do it out of consideration. Do it knowing who they are and what they've had to deal with. Just provoke them to love and good deeds. Provoke means to call words out of. To, to bring forth a conversation. Get to know them. Get to know their story. Find out why they're broken in that way. Find out where they hurt. And then maybe you can consider how to provoke them to love and good deeds. And when we do that together, when we do that for one another, we don't, um, we, in order to do that, we don't neglect meeting together. We don't just say, well, you know, I tried church. You know, there's a bunch of broken people in that church, so I don't want to be part of it. Instead, don't neglect meet together and, and instead encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So that's, that's the instruction we receive about what the church is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a place where it's not, our entrance into the church is not based on anything we've done. And 
our privilege to remain is not based on anything we've done. <coughs> but if we are here, we should be a community that comes together, that doesn't judge or condemn, but that pushes, that nudges, that encourages us to grow, to live into the reality of our faith. So that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts laid out for you in so many words. But I want to look very quickly at the passage from John because this is this kind of shows you what it looks like when that happens. If you live out that kind of church, what would it look like? And here's a beautiful picture here in, in chapter 21 of John. It says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. This is the third resurrection appearance of, uh, of Jesus. So they've seen him before. He, he showed up in chapter 20, and then he showed up a week later also in chapter 20. This is now the third time Jesus has appeared. They know Jesus has been raised from the dead. And it says, gathered there were Simon and these other disciples. And Simon says, I'm going fishing. Why do you suppose he did that? He's seen Jesus. He's seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. Why did he do that? Maybe Simon just needed some time to think it through. Maybe he, maybe he said to himself, you know, I've seen a lot of things in my old age. I've seen all kinds of stuff. But I walked around the countryside for three years with that man, and then I watched him brutally executed, and three days later, there he was, alive and kicking. And I just need to, I just need to think that over. I, I need some time to come to grips with that. Maybe that's all Peter wanted. He just said, I need to occupy my hands with a familiar task while I just think this through. Or maybe he said, you know what? I've seen the risen Lord. I've seen Jesus, and he's alive, and I denied him three times. I promised that I would support him to the end, but a little middle school girl accused me of knowing him, and I chickened out. I said I never knew them. He said, he can't possibly love me. And so he said, I'm going to scoot on out of here. I'm going to go fishing. And what I love is what the other disciples do. The other disciples say, we'll go with you. They say, we'll go too. Maybe because they have the same thing. Maybe they're exactly like Peter. They need to figure it out. Maybe because they also denied Jesus. But for whatever reason, they don't say, no, Peter, you got it all wrong. No, Peter, you need to get your life straight. They don't tell Peter anything. They don't judge him or condemn him. They say, we'll go too. And so they went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And in the morning, they see Jesus on the side of the, the beach, but they don't know who it is. They don't know who Jesus is. Um, and Jesus says, did you catch anything? And they say, no. And Jesus says, well, throw your net over on the right side of the boat for a catch. And something about that makes John, the disciple that, that Jesus loved, he calls himself. John says, hey, I have heard that before. When somebody who has no clue what we've been doing all night tells me where to catch fish. And the fishermen don't know. I have been there and done that. I know who that is. That's the Lord. And he says, that's the Lord. And Peter jumps into the water because Peter is with a community of people and one of them is able to point out Jesus when he didn't see Jesus. 
So Peter jumps into the water. He swims to the shore. He gets to the shore and Jesus says, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. You know, here's a great stewardship message all by itself. Jesus already has his fish and his bread and his campfire. Jesus doesn't need anything, but he invites them to contribute. And what did he invite them to contribute? What he told them how to catch. They didn't have a clue how to get the fish. But Jesus invites them to contribute some of the fish that they brought. So he says, bring some of the fish you cut. So Peter went aboard and hauled the net full of large fish, 153 of them. He gives, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to leverage that portfolio that he manages, the, the skills as a fisherman, the, the, the possessions, all these fish that he's caught. He gives them a chance to leverage it in the service of the Lord. He says, go and bring some of the fish you caught. So Peter brings it, and then he says, come and have breakfast. I love that, that picture of what kind of community the church can be. The, the, the best definition I know of to describe the church um, is, is this. It, it's, the church is a safe place where people can hear the good news that God doesn't hate them. The thing is, there are people, there are people in this room who can't believe that. They need to hear it 15, 100, 153 times. They need to hear that despite what they believe, despite the things they've done, despite the things that have been done to them, despite the things that people have said about them, God doesn't hate them. Despite the circumstances, the chickens coming home to roost, that's not God hating them. People need to hear the good news that God doesn't hate them. They need a safe place where they can do it without judgment or condemnation. They need a place where they can figure out what it is about the God that doesn't hate them, what it is about Jesus. They need a place where they can go and be part of a community while they work their stuff out with Jesus. That's the picture of what the church is like. We see it in the book of John, and we we see it instructed to us. It's given to us as instructions in the letter to the Hebrews. A place where people can hear that God doesn't hate them, that God loves them, God longs to be in a relationship with them, God wants to be with them in eternity. And so he sent Jesus to save us. And by the power of his Holy Spirit working in us, he begins healing our hurts and fixing the parts that are broken. That's what a church is supposed to be, a safe place, a refuge, a shelter, an asylum. And if you support Jewel Lake Parish, that's the church we are trying to be. That's the church that you will be supporting. And if that's what you needed to hear, then I encourage you to become a regular, consistent supporter of this church. And if you're still on the fence, if you're still thinking it through, remember, um, like they say in the info commercials, wait, there's more. Because next week we're going to talk about the work that Jesus calls us to do in the world. Next week we're going to talk about the mission of the church. But God gives us the resources to be generous. God has equipped us with the things we need to be generous. And there are a million and seven great ways we can be generous in the world. But if you are generous to Jewel Lake Parish, what you will be working toward, what you'll be helping us to build is a safe place for people to hear the good news 
that Jesus doesn't hate them, that God doesn't hate them. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for, um, for your generosity, that you entrust us with, with uh, things, and you judge us not by how closely we hold on to them, but by how ready we are to share. And so, Lord, we, we, help, we, we pray that you would give us help, uh, guide us as we look for ways to share them well. And, Lord, I pray for the mission of this church, that we can be worthy of your support, um, the support of, of your portfolio managers, as we seek to be the kind of place where people can experience community, they can figure out what they believe, and they can begin living into it. We pray you'd guide us and direct our steps as a congregation as we seek to be that kind of church. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.